Hey there, just a quick note before we dive in. This episode includes conversations about exploitation, persecution, genocide, and murder. I want to encourage you to take care of yourself and use discretion as you choose whether to listen. Okay, here's the episode. This is Until All Are Free. I'm your host, Preston Goff. One of the primary reasons why we started this podcast was so that we could use this space to help you to better understand the real-life ways that injustice happens to people all around the world and the real-life ways that action is taken to right those injustices. You know, oftentimes the stories that we share focus in on one single individual, one story, one case. We've shared with you the story of Sarah, of Cindy, of Maria, and others. But today's story is a little different in that regard. I want to bring you a glimpse into the exploitation of an entire people group, the Rohingya Muslim people group of present-day Myanmar. If you follow the news closely, you're likely familiar with the name of this group at some level. Unfortunately, they've been in the news a lot over the past decade because of the atrocities committed against them throughout Southeast Asia. The reason we're discussing their story today will become clear as you listen. But for now, here is our co-founder, Matt Parker. So this was several years ago at this point when uh, Laura and I were living in Thailand at the time, working uh, to fight human trafficking, but we weren't uh, clearly as developed as we are today as an organization. And and back then, we we particularly focused on uh, sex trafficking, but there were rumors on the street about Rohingya people being exploited, uh, trafficked. I, that That's literally the extent of my knowledge of what was going on. I knew uh, that genocide had been taking place in Myanmar for a long, long time, and there were refugees seeking asylum in Thailand. There was a large amount of desperation of the Rohingya people being persecuted, murdered because of their faith. If you uh, had to estimate time range, kind of when th- that this early just awareness of, hey, something's going on, 2013, 2014? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would say 2013. Yeah. Uh, when, when it came on the radar as, hey, to the north of Thailand, there's a problem yeah. uh, with trafficking and genocide that's taking place. But that was really all we, all we really knew at the time. Um, so right around that time, as it happened, uh, I was approached by a donor of the Exodus Road here locally in Colorado Springs who had a career experience as a ranger, an army ranger. And um, he was high-ranking when he retired and started to work for North Command and NATO forces, supporting them with digital technologies. And he sat down with me over lunch, and he's like, Matt, have you ever heard of Celebrate? Mm. And I was like, no. And he said, well, you might want to look into it. We in the U.S. Armed Forces use their technologies to identify terrorist groups uh, through digital intelligence. And I was like, wow, I know nothing about that, but it sounds interesting. And he said, I just happened to have about 30 of these UFED devices that I can't use, and I'd love to donate those to you. So I said yes, and I went and, and collected these 30 devices, these physical UFED devices, 
Um, and they were in these big clunky briefcases that, you know, you could drive a tank over them and, and it would still be <laughs> safe. And they're heavy, you know, yeah. back then. And so I got 30 of these things up into our office and I was so thankful, although I wasn't sure at the time how we might leverage them. Yeah, I was still learning about digital intelligence. And all I knew was this retired army ranger who specializes in this kind of thing said, hey, I think this could be helpful to you. Yeah, And so my, my goal was to see if I couldn't, you know, get these units in the hands of law enforcement to enhance their capabilities. Yeah. That was really the simple. It wasn't really, hey, Matt's going to learn how to be a, a cyber ninja and use these tools to crack open all the cases. That, that really isn't our approach here at the Exodus Road. It really is to support uh, those who have the authority to engage in this fight and make their fight as, as good as it can be. And so my thought was, hey, let me see if I can get these tools over into Thailand and in the hands of the right officers who can use them to do good. So I did that, and uh, we had a, a group of volunteers that helped carry some of these tools over. And at the time, we were partnering, a good friend of mine, Steve Gouster, the CEO of Freeland, we were partnering with Freeland to fight human trafficking. And Freeland at the time had an undercover investigations team, and of course, that's what we did. And uh, Steve and I would brainstorm various cases in Thailand, specifically Bangkok, and how we could help each other to take down syndication. And Steve was familiar with Celebrite, and here I show up on the scene with 30, all these youth, 30 all, youth yeah, fed devices. <laughs> all these youth fed devices. And, I, and um, so we stored those. We shared an office at the time, and so I stored those in that office and, and made them available to law enforcement made them available to uh, whoever needed them, uh, who could officially use them. And I will say this, and I think it's an important thing to say. What I love about Celebrate, and and I think it, it totally aligns with our values, um, you, you really can only use a Celebrate tool if you have a warrant. Yeah, yeah. And there's other tools out there that are a bit more, a bit more loose with that, but Celebrate has had a very high ethical standard of how to leverage their technologies because they're very powerful. And um, so I really appreciated that. And so we made, made it a point to partner with law enforcement uh, in the use of these tools. Before we get into the details of this story, I want to talk for a moment about the Rohingya people, their history, their unique cultural identifiers, and the circumstances that have led them to be classified as one of, if not the most, persecuted people groups in the world. By no means will this be an exhaustive telling of their story, but I hope it's a bit of a primer. Rohingya historians and peoples claim that their cultural roots are derived from the Arakan region of present-day Myanmar. This is an area that is situated on the southwestern coast of the country, along the Bay of Bengal. Because of its presence in the maritime ports, Arakan was a favored region for Arab traders looking to access the southern portion of the Silk Road which forged a connection between India, Burma, or what is present-day Myanmar, and China. Arab traders arriving in the 7th and 8th century brought Islam with them, converting the local population of Buddhists who would later become the Rohingyan Muslim peoples that lay claims to the region as their historical home today. But the problem is that all of these claims are and have been for some time 
disputed by many local and regional Buddhist history scholars and by larger Buddhist cultural groups throughout the region. They claim that the introduction of Islam into Myanmar occurred much later, after the turn of the first millennium in fact. Furthermore, rather than attributing the expansion of Islam as a result of the conversion of native Burmese Buddhists, the opposing view states that Islam's presence is the result of the migration of Bengali residents from the north into Myanmar. So what does this mean for the current day? Those that hold the second viewpoint believe that Rohingya people have no valid claim to inhabit Myanmar. This opposition has led to violent clashes, the driving out of Rohingya people from Myanmar, and even genocide. Now fast forward hundreds of years from the 7th century, and in the 18th century, the Kongbangs dynasty over the region saw violent oppression of Muslim peoples in the Arakan region. Estimates state that as many as 35,000 religious refugees fled that area for British-held Bengal in the late 1700s. But less than a century later, Britain actually held authority over that recently vacated region of Arakan, and they encouraged Bengali inhabitants to migrate to the area for the sake of cultivating farms in the rich soils of this newly, lightly populated valley. By 1911, census records show that over 170,000 Muslims were living in the Arakan's Akyab district. Now, a little bit later, during World War II, Japanese forces invaded British-held Burma, and the Queen's forces retreated leaving a power vacuum that exposed Muslim communities to increased pressure and persecution from the Arakan Buddhist majority population. Conflict erupted then, and it's been a mainstay of the region ever since. On January 4, 1948, Burma declared independence from Britain. And though relationships between Muslim Rohingya and Buddhist Burmese residents were far from amicable in the years following, the early 1960s really marked a major milestone in the intensifying of systemic violence towards the Muslim population. In 1962, Burma's military junta took power, and under the leadership of General Ne Win, they began implementing a nationalist agenda that prioritized the separation of nationals and non-nationals, among which the Rohingya peoples were included. Violence beginning in 1968 and continuing into the 1970s saw the forced displacement of 200,000 Rohingya refugees. Many fled to Bangladesh. Later on, another crisis took place in 1991 and 92, with 250,000 more Rohingya people fleeing the country for the Muslim-safe region of northern Bangladesh. In 2015, tens of thousands of Rohingya people were forcibly displaced from their villages in Myanmar due to sectarian violence. Some, like before, fled to neighboring Bangladesh, but most traveled to other Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. They traveled often by rickety boats in the waters of the Strait of Malacca and the Bay of Bengal and in the Andaman Sea. Now it's at this point in the violence fraught story of the Rohingya people that the Exodus Road intersected in one small way. On January 11th, 2015, Thai police were stopping vehicles at a routine checkpoint when a large truck arrived. 
As that truck came to a stop, several men jumped from the cab and they fled, causing police to pursue. One of the men was caught, but it's what police discovered at the truck that blew open a case that would eventually garner international interest and focus on the plight of the Rohingya once again. So I had these tools in the Bangkok office uh, in partnership with, with Steve at Freeland, and I got a phone call from Steve uh, shortly thereafter. He said, Matt, I, we got a phone call from a law enforcement officer kind of in a remote area, um, and he had conducted a random vehicle stop. And for those who are listening who might be familiar, in Thailand, they don't really chase you down for speeding like sometimes they do in the United States, but they do a lot of these random roadblocks and they check your ID and your registration. And so that's what this law enforcement officer was doing. He just did a random road stop. And as it would happen, a vehicle approached the road stop. It was a, a canvas covered truck. But when, when the truck stopped and the police were about to inspect it or whatever, the drivers of this vehicle and the passenger, they bolted. Just jumped out and fled. <laughs> they fled. Yeah. They took off running. And, and so cops, of course, chased them down, tackled one guy. The other guy got away. On further inspection of that vehicle, they went around to the back. They opened the back, uh, and there was upwards of 90. 98, yeah. 98 Rohingya, tr you know, trafficked refugees, yeah. refugees in the back of this thing. And and one, uh, I believe it was a, a teenager, had suffocated. Uh, they were packed in there so tight. There was a, a deceased individual in the back, too. And, of course, this is really alarming to law enforcement, Uh you know, it's not your typical road stop kind of scenario. But as they went through the vehicle, they found six, I believe it was six cell phones that the driver and passenger had left in the front cab. But of course, they're all locked. Yeah. And this officer had heard that uh, Freeland and the Exus Road had these UFED devices and called us for support. Hey there, this is Preston. I just want to interrupt quickly and just say that Celebrite's Universal Forensics Extraction Device, or UFED device, is a product series that's produced by the Israeli company for the extraction and analysis of data from mobile devices by law enforcement agencies. Um, and we did that. We engaged uh, some law enforcement officers, uh, covered the expenses for them to take our devices to this location, and they extracted all the data off of these phones. So that process took a while um, because of the volume of phones, but also the chain of custody of those phones. So it took a, it, back then it took about a month, I believe, a month and a half for them to, to, to really analyze everything, work with anti-money laundering office to pull banking records, to really kind of create this map. Um, and what it did was it, it blew open this case, and it, it didn't just reveal uh, the mechanisms of trafficking. It, it also revealed these jungle holding camps. It revealed corrupt officials who were protecting uh, the syndicate. Things that, that we had heard through rumor, this Celebrite device made fact. And what we learned was... Rohingya people were fleeing for their life, right, from Myanmar. 
They were paying human smugglers to load them on ships and take them to Malaysia. Malaysia, the northern area of Malaysia, is highly uh, Muslim, so it's, it's, it's a safe place for these people to migrate to and, and find safety. And a lot of them had family in Malaysia. So they were kind of paying these human smugglers to bypass Thailand down the Andaman coast to make landfall in Malaysia. On, car- on like cargo ships? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, they weren't so much cargo ships. Um, they, they looked like larger fishing vessels. Okay. Um, but what happened is these human smugglers turned human traffickers. And somewhere en route, uh, it was made clear, we're not going to Malaysia. And they made landfall instead on the coast of Thailand, and they would load the Rohingyas into the back of these trucks and then drive them to a prison camp, a a jungle, a hidden jungle uh, holding facility. And those camps had been rumored as well. But you have to understand... A lot of landmass in Thailand is still jungle uh, where there are no roads, just thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres of jungle. So they would drive these canvas-covered trucks full of Rohingyas to the edge of the jungle, and then they would hike for days into the jungle. And inside there, there, there would be these prison encampments. And all manner of her, uh, atrocities happened to these Rohingyas, all, all manner of abuses happened uh, to include murder. And the traffickers would make phone calls to Malaysian family members and try to ransom uh, these prisoners, traffic prisoners, to the family members. And if they couldn't successfully uh, procure a ransom, they would sell them to uh, the shrimping industry. And if they couldn't do that, if they weren't young and able-bodied enough to do that, they would execute them. And so this was all taking place and had been taking place for many, many years. I've heard estimates of up to 60 years this has been happening since the beginning of the um, refugee crisis. The refugee crisis from Myanmar. People were exploiting that vulnerability for profit. So... The, the story goes that uh, around this time of extracting intelligence from these digital devices, there was uh, this ransom tactic was happening, and uh, one of the trafficked victims was a young man who had a family member in Thailand, actually, and the trafficker called the family member, it was his uncle, and said, hey... Um, you know, you have to pay a ransom to free your nephew. And if you don't, we're going to execute him. And if you go to the law enforcement and report this, we're going to execute him. And so this uncle didn't have any money and ended up reporting this to law enforcement in the same area where these phones were found. And so this case kind of comes on the radar of law enforcement in that area. Unfortunately, traffickers did find out that that uncle had called police. They called the uncle on the phone, got the nephew on the phone, and executed him uh, while he was on the phone with his uncle. And so that, that gives you a bit of the, the bigness, the urgency, the seriousness 
of this type of trafficking. Sometimes you, when you think of trafficking, you think, oh, well, there's, an, there's a poor individual who's being forced into prostitution or, or sexual services or forced into domestic servanthood, which those are, are horrendous things by themselves. But when you put it on the grid of something so systematic where there's recruitment, transport, enslavement, uh, and then ransom, yeah. there's murder, it, it's this whole level of complexity that has been going on for a very, very long time. So when the case broke open with the Celebrite device, it gave law enforcement the data necessary to pull the banking records of all the corrupt officials who were involved, corrupt law enforcement who were involved, because all those names and phone numbers were on those cell phones that these traffickers had. Um, and being able to backtrace uh, the money and connecting officials in law enforcement to the crime, protecting the crime, it also exposed the location of four jungle holding camps where unfortunately law enforcement discovered mass graves. Um, various reports came out. It led to an estimated 400 recovered Rohingyas from that operation. But research and, and, and further articles that have come out um, reveal that it had been going on for so long, it would have been thousands and thousands of Rohingyas coming through those camps and either executed or sold uh, by ransom or to the fishing industry. And so I feel like the other real important um, thing that happened, and I think why it got international attention, was when the case broke, there were still ships mid-journey. You know, this yeah. was a very regular route that these... Yeah. Fishermen, you know, were taking Rohingyas. Well, when they found out that the holding camps had been taken down and traffickers were arrested and it was all blowing up, they the captains— They could see the writing on the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They abandoned ship. So they just left their boats full of Rohingyas, hundreds afloat, <laughs> yeah. out to sea. And uh, I remember large news agencies kind of picking that up and saying, look— this case has been broken, but now there's these ships full of, of slaves adrift. And where are they going to go? Who's going to take them? And no country for a while would, would take them for asylum. And so it became this international uh, crisis. But it, it kind of showed the world, too, this was an active syndicate, you know, recruiting, transporting, and, and abusing traffic victims. Yeah, thanks. Um, do you remember anything about the like corrupt officials and what the judicial process looked like? Um, not not too much. I, I do know that one of the lead officials uh, on the case, of course, his life was threatened, and he ended up going into hiding um, because he saw the case through prosecution, and then you know his life was at risk. And I will say that the people who brought that case forward and saw it through to justice, that they had to flee uh, for their lives. And I, 
I think it's easy for me sometimes to be like, oh, look, somebody donated a Celebrite tool and it, it, it cracked open this case. I think that Celebrite device was critical to the case. But equally, if not more so, were the good men and women who saw it through, yeah. despite overwhelming threats to their safety, on behalf of the hundreds and thousands that for years were caught up in this horrendous crime. Yeah, yeah, to, uh, to have the data in front of you and to not turn, turn away from it. Which would yeah. be easy for them to do. Hmm. All said and done, 67 police officers, three politicians, and one Thai army major was connected to this case. The data extracted by the Celebrite UFED tool, things like phone and banking records, led police to the discovery of the key trafficker, a Thai politician and businessman named Sunan. Banking records indicated that Sunan had deposited nearly 600,000 US dollars in accounts belonging to a Lieutenant General Manas. Banking records also indicated that Sunan's nephew had transferred over 400,000 US to Manas himself. As a senior military leader, Lieutenant General Manas was partially responsible for enforcing Thailand's controversial pushback policy. This was a policy that involved the turning around of boats of stateless or refugee Rohingya who were trying to flee persecution in Myanmar. But rather than enforcing it, Manas used his power to exploit refugees by rerouting their ships to secret points along Thailand's shoreline. From there, human traffickers would move the refugees to jungle prison camps where they were held for ransom, sold as slave labor, or, if deemed not necessary, executed. In 2015, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Manas. He surrendered to authorities and claimed innocence, but was convicted of the crimes of human trafficking and corruption and sentenced in 2017 to 27 years in prison. In 2019, his sentence was increased to 82 years. And last year, 2021, Manas died of a heart attack in prison. I mean, it kind of changed everything as as far as how we view transnational criminal syndication and how do you fight that? How do you combat that? We're a small nonprofit. We have courageous men and women willing to go undercover and identify victims, critically important work. But then how do you deliver a blow to a trafficking syndicate that's more than just the individual or the individual establishment. How can you, with the limited resources we have, leverage all that we can leverage to to be as as dangerous to their operations as possible? And that's really, I think, what this case back in 2015 really showed me was when you insert technology, you enhance the investment of time, you reduce the amount of manpower required. Yeah. The quality of intel is, in, is improved to some degree. It's undeniable yeah. in, in court when you have that type of data-rich intelligence and investigations and evidence. So for me, of course, we continued our human intelligence. That's, that's really who we are at the Exodus Road. But man, it, it set this fire alight in me to figure out how do we leverage technology, continue to, to leverage Celebrite. And I have... 
you know, inadvertently been a spokesperson for Celebrite since that day because I travel all around the world. I work with law enforcement. I'm meeting embassies and, and people who care about trafficking. I'm always talking now about digital forensics and intelligence that really enhances our effort to fight this type of crime. And I was thinking actually this morning, driving into work, just, you know, traffickers bring an amount of energy and force into the world that that is abusive, of course, and exploitive. How do you fight that? Well, the amount of energy we bring, it has to not only match their level of energy, it has to exceed it. If we're going to suppress trafficking, make it a dangerous crime to commit. If we're going to be about that, then we have to bring this overwhelming amount of intelligence, tactics, uh, resolve. And so for, for me, since 2015, when we saw the, the power of the Celebrite device, of course, I wanted to adopt that into our thinking and, and into our strategy to say, hey, we've got to get this tool into as many good hands as we can uh, to outpace traffickers' ability to recruit, transport, and, and sell humans. We have to use these tools to shut them down, to figure out not just the mom and pops, but who's the kingpin. Who's, not who's in the brothel selling the individual. Yes, arrest that person. But who does that person work for and who does that person work for? All the way up to the executive level of major corporations sometimes. The Celebrite tool and other digital tools, they, they make that possible. Yeah. So it's 2022. It's been seven years since that first case. The landscape of what is possible online and in the digital space has dramatically shifted and changed. Um, our world is increasingly online because of COVID. Um, I think that was a, a dramatic um, season for, for our world and propelled a lot of people onto online and with that exploitation um, only persevered <laughs> online. What are we, what's, what's kind of on the horizon and what, what is like cutting edge um, when it comes to cyber intelligence today? That's a great question. So today, the Exodus Road has an open source intelligence team. We call it Delta Silver. And it's comprised of military experts, military trained experts in the digital intelligence space. And they are now leveraging together a suite of tools donated to the Exodus Road that have different capabilities that when utilized in harmony, create a very powerful digital intelligence uh, effort. So for us, just some examples, uh, we're currently leveraging a product uh, called Traffic Jam, which was- Hey there, I just wanna chime in here as Matt begins to mention Traffic Jam. If you remember, back on episode 19, we welcomed Emily Kennedy to the podcast to talk about Traffic Jam, the program that she helped create as a founder of Marinus Analytics. And we talked in greater detail on that episode about the way that the software helps to assist law enforcement in the work of investigation here in the US and all around the world. I'd recommend adding that episode to your queue if you haven't had a chance to listen yet. At the Exodus Road, we utilize Traffic Jam to help investigate tips that we receive and then to pass on intelligence that we gather to law enforcement. We share that intel with departments in the US, but we also leverage the program overseas as a tool to assist in the human intelligence investigations that our search and rescue teams perform. By Marinus Analytics, 
and it will scrape open source data, specifically escort service providers, and help very rapidly determine movement of escorts, uh, their geo footprint, their facial recognition, uh, even down to their bone structure and estimating their ages uh, as a reverse phone number trace. So if an individual is selling themselves, for example, then they probably are using their own phone number. But if that phone number is attached to 30 other advertisements with 30 different women, that's likely a syndicate. So that tool is very powerful. And, and that is a law enforcement grade tool. It's utilized largely by law enforcement in the United States. We're using that here at the Exodus Road. Um, other capabilities are reverse crypto tracing. Uh, traffickers are, are really using cryptocurrency kind of like they used to use Western Union. Um, to hide transactions? To hide transactions because yeah. they're largely anonymized, but there's tactics and ways uh, to to narrow down on its origin and destination. And we're developing that capacity. It's, it's not fully up and running, but we're developing that. Uh, really tools that help you identify an individual's true identity, their business ownership, business affiliations, and where they bank. Yeah. So our OSINT team, our Delta Silver team of, of really military-trained analysts are able to support cases on a global scale. Here in the United States and on a global scale, and, and, and these technologies, um, you know, I would say the Exodus Road's not doing anything illegal. These tools are available. The, it's all about harnessing large amounts of data that's readily available and making uh, the and having those tools powerfully analyze that data and boil it down to things that really matter. Common indicators, relates, yeah. Yeah, as it yeah. relates to trafficking uh, movements. So I'm very proud of the department we've built to, to really support United States law enforcement, law enforcement around the world in figuring out who these pedophiles are, who these traffickers are, who they work with. Uh, and oftentimes law enforcement may want us to help them track someone down, or maybe it's just as simple as letting them use a Celebrite device that they can't otherwise afford. Improving concept to these departments and agencies that technology is worth the investment when we're fighting such a complex transnational crime. Um, so that's that's our capacity today, and uh, I think the the applications to fight trafficking are significant. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, thanks thanks for sharing about the story about the the good work of Celebrate and the the ways that they have empowered um, freedom for for so many around the world. Um, it's uh, it can sometimes feel very daunting to imagine all the ways that someone with malintent can exploit. But it's also really hopeful when you hear stories about the ways that technology and tools are being leveraged um, to disrupt that. And um, I think that's just the, the large takeaway I feel from, from today's conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Of course. On March 21st of this year, 2022, the United States Department of State, led by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, published a special memo concerning Myanmar. They said, quote, following a rigorous factual and legal analysis, the secretary determined that members of the Burmese military committed genocide and crimes against humanity against Rohingya. Since the Holocaust, the United States has concluded only seven other times that genocide was committed. 
This determination marks the eighth. Now, many of their findings were sourced from interviews that were conducted with over a thousand Rohingya refugees that are located in Cox's Bazar district of Bangladesh. The interviews took place in 2018 under the Trump administration's efforts to investigate atrocities committed against Rohingya people. Notably, over 82% of those interviewed reported having personally experienced hut or village destruction and killing. 65% reported abduction, 51% sexual violence, and 57% movement restrictions or captivity. The report from these interviews is so sobering, but so very informative. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, this has by no means been an exhaustive story about the Rohingya people. I owe this story to research and comments provided by multiple sources, which I'll link in the show notes. But even more than that, I owe this story to the courageous men and women who have continually stood for justice for the Rohingya people. I want to encourage you to take a look at our episode page to read and learn more about this case. You'll find the U.S. documentation of atrocities in northern Rakhine State on our episode page as well. Before we end, I want to give you a chance to hear these words sung by native Rohingya Muslim refugees. This is a religious song sung in their native tongue called Muslims of the Land of Arakan. But here are just a few of the lyrics translated into English. O oh God, have mercy on your slaves, the Burma Muslims. When we abide by the God, the military chase us and arrest. How will we stay in this land? We have family at home and kids dying in hunger. How can we live in this land? O oh God, Show mercy to your slaves, to our Khan's Muslims. As always, thanks for listening to this episode of Until All Are Free. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road, a nonprofit with a vision for a world in which humans are never bought, sold, or exploited. We disrupt the darkness of modern-day slavery by partnering with law enforcement to fight human trafficking crime, equipping communities to protect the vulnerable, and empowering survivors as they walk into freedom. You can learn more about our work and support our efforts by visiting theexodusroad.com. This podcast is produced and hosted by me, Preston Goff. Special thanks to Farzana Kazi Famida, who recorded and published the song you just heard at the end, Muslims of the Land of Arakan. That song was accessed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks for listening. I'm looking for a sign, shut up inside.